This is the Wealthy Retailer Podcast with your host, Dan Holman. Every episode, Dan talks with a variety of retail experts, owners, managers, and so much more, sharing their expertise, their experiences, and the retail topics that matter to you, the independent retailer. The Wealthy Retailer Podcast is brought to you by Canadian Retail Solutions. Learn more at retailbycrs.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Dan Holman. I'm sure by now you know that. Super, super excited today. Um, I have Simon Trafford joining us on the podcast. Simon is the founder of Merchant Mastery, owner at Socialite. Um, and I'm not going to give you the big lowdown on Simon. I'm going to let him do that. But I'm going to let you know, um, listeners, uh, this is a podcast you want to listen to. Here's a company that represents about $6 million in ad spend and nine times that in client revenue. Simon, welcome to the podcast, man. Really appreciate you being here and I'm looking forward to this chat. Right on. Thanks, Dan. Glad to be here. Yeah. So we chatted a little bit just before I clicked the record button. Um, and uh, I want you to share your background um, you sort of threw it out there to me in this nonchalant way. And I, I, I want our listeners to be able to hear um, this right from you. Tell me about your background and how you became um, with Merchant Mastery and Socialite. Let's talk a little bit about that whole evolution. And then we'll talk some specifics. Yeah, absolutely. So the English degree, right? The creative <laughs> writing, that's my background. So yeah. <laughs> I went to school for something that does not ever pay the bills once you graduate. So of course, you know, I need to figure out how I'm actually going to make some money with my life. And, and the natural progression was into marketing. So funny enough, I actually started out in comedy clubs. That is where I began my career, managing comedy clubs, filling the seats. This is back in like 2008, probably. Yeah. Facebook was brand new. I think their ad platform just came out and I figured out pretty quickly that I could sell tickets to comedy clubs using Facebook ridiculously cheap. So I was getting like 50 cent cost per acquisition, selling out at a club five nights a week with, you know, a $300 ad spend. Yeah. And I was like, this is, that. and at that point I'm like, this is the future. Like I'm a manager here at this club and it turned out I was just more of a Facebook marketer guy and everyone's looking at me in this in this hotel where the club was like what is this kid doing like he's got to do it for the hotel that we're in like can you do it there and I'm like yeah probably so kind of shift over to the hotel business for a bit and you know finally realized like you know I should be doing this for myself like I'm you know filling all these getting all these heads and beds and hotels and you know packing comedy clubs and then I was and then I met my business partner Scott up in Edmonton through my wife now actually and we kind of combined forces and said let's let's run this agency let's get this agency going so yeah. that's yeah. The, that was when when Socialite started and like I said that was about eight years ago and um, we we didn't know what we were doing really at the time we were doing everything from oil and gas marketing to hotels and hospitality and restaurants tiny little restaurants that had maybe 200 bucks a month to spend on marketing so we had no idea anyways over the years we niched right down we figured out what we're really good at and that was with actually e-commerce so probably the biggest reason we're, we're really good at that is because you know we can actually 
show our clients and show the brands that the sales that they're getting are coming directly from the work that we're doing, right? This is as opposed to, you know, work for an oil and gas company with a sales team of guys that are like drinking at lunch, coming back to the office and having a snooze all afternoon. Meanwhile, they got a stack of leads on their desk this tall, right? And they're not calling the leads that we're generating. Therefore, these marketing guys aren't worth anything to us because we're not closing any more deals than we were. So, you know, got out of that business, got into e-commerce headfirst. And, you know, within a few years, that's all we were doing. COVID hit. I wouldn't dream of taking on a client that wasn't involved in e-commerce anymore. And and now we're just 100% full bore e-com. Yeah. So that, and that's where Socialite is now. And we're, we're pretty, we're growing pretty nicely. We have a lot, like you said, last year I spent $6 million on advertising (laughs) company-wide, which seems pretty obscene. Um, But it generated, you know, we generated a ton of revenue for our clients in the process and had a really good return on that spend. Uh, Not only do we just do ads, we also do, you know, customer lifetime value work. So anything that's email related, SMS, we're, we're lighting up, you know, sequences to make sure that once we do acquire a customer, they come back many, many times and purchase, right? Because that's where the profit lies. Um, yeah, so we, we, we got into that and, and we service kind of more like people that are doing about probably 50K a month, maybe a, a million a year to start. Right. on the agency side because that's kind of one of the only time it makes sense to pay these guys a bunch of money plus a big ad spend you know for us to do that with startups is we're gonna sink people they're gonna lose their houses if, they, right. if they're not successful right so then we we looked at it and we're like okay well we have all these merchants and, and we're big partners with shopify and there and we do all kinds of events and meetups all over the world and a probably 80, 90% of the people we talk to are not qualified to be our clients, right? right. They're, they're doing, they're just getting started. They have, you know, maybe doing a couple sales. And I, I always say, if I'm, I'm, will, I'm willing to talk to you if you can make sales that aren't from your friends and family. So as long as you have a few of those, we can help. And the way we, we figured out that we can help is actually by training these kind of startup uh, mode guys or maybe they've been at it for a while and have a few things but are looking to take it to that next level and so what we did is we kind of just download all of the strategies that we're running on the agency side for some of these bigger brands and put them and made created courses and and now I coach five times a week so I have big group coaching sessions and and it's just been a massive success and it's been probably just over a year now since we launched launched Merchant Mastery and that's the education side of our business. Right. Nice. Yeah. Really good. I love the idea that, you know, you're, you're engaged with people or you get engaged with people that you can't work with. And that's the reality for anybody that is an expert in their field. You really have to know your target market, which I mean, in retail, nothing is more important than knowing your audience and knowing your target market, knowing not just who you should be working with or who should be buying from you, but who maybe you shouldn't be working with. And so I love that you understand that. And certainly, you know, we understand that as well, I, both from, you know, the coaching side of CRS and um, the point of sale side, certainly from coaching, you know, I don't ever want to sink anyone. I don't want to say to someone, you know, this is going to cost you 50,000 bucks this year, you know, when they're 
they're doing $190,000 a year in revenue. You know, that's yeah. not really on point. So let's, let's fast forward. So we're doing um, uh, some education with Merchant Mastery. Uh, one of the topics that we thought we would chat a little bit about was, you know, getting from that few to many in e-com sales. And, and how does that start for someone? What does the foundation look like outside of getting my mom to stop buying from me? <laughs> yeah, good. Really good question. Probably the question <laughs> of everyone who's starting out, right? And the way there's a really important thing that we look at, first of all, and that is product market fit, right? Yeah. So that goes exactly what you said. If you can get someone to buy it that's not your mom, chances are you're pretty close to product market fit. And that is like marketing is 10%, product is 90%. If you have, it, it all starts with having something that people want, right? And there's a lot of counterintuitive things that start to happen here. And even with, even with brands that we work with that have one killer product up here, and then I hear guys say, well, well, I want to sell more of this stuff over here on, and I want to use Facebook and I want to advertise this stuff that doesn't sell so good. I'm like, you want to throw away money, <laughs> right? Like go after what works. So step one is finding something that people want and people will gladly pay money for. And if you can do that organically without spending a dime on advertising or anything, you know, you got something. Like it is shockingly difficult to sell organically these days for whatever reason, the algorithms and, and everything that's happening. And I'm talking organic social media, organic, everything you being out in the world is one of the biggest things you can do. Like I said, we, we do Shopify events. So many of our clients and, and cuss and students come from those events doing being out in the world and not being afraid to hide behind your you know, not, not being afraid to get out from behind your computer once in a while and go out into the real world, right? So that's massively important is finding a product that you know can crush day in and day out. And then it's just going after that, right? So the next steps are, of course, you know, you have your website. We're big proponents of Shopify because it makes things incredibly easy for you to do, especially if, if you're starting out. There's nothing that scares me more than somebody that, you know, doesn't even know if they're going to win at this, hiring a developer to build them a website for 40 grand. Right. Right. It's like, you need to figure it out without, you know, maybe you have that kind of money, which is awesome. And I know, I know most people don't, right. but you need to, you need to figure out how to make sales before you start dumping loads of money into web dev, web dev and ads and everything and free and hiring people right so that's kind of step one um you know rich it's funny you say you know rich people become very poor when they enter the world of retail and i i don't decipher i don't segregate between brick and mortar retail and e-commerce retail and i know you guys are very specific in e-com um, and in the last year, certainly, you know, that has become a very significant channel. Um, but I, I will, I will agree with you, you know, rich people become very poor when they start throwing money at, you know, thinking they're going to walk into the e-com world and, and, you know, do a ton of business. It really does start. I love the idea of getting out behind your keyboard. It really does start. And we think about our retail stores now as places to capture market share and deliver some experience 
Um, but we're seeing just as many, you know, clicks or finger clicks or, or finger purchases in some cases as we are seeing in brick and mortar stores. So we've kind of got a good product to go to market. And whether it's a, a fashion product or an essential product, um, if it's good product, if people are, are interested in, in it's, they identify it as essential, I've got to have this. I mean, don't we want to treat everything we <laughs> try to sell as you got to have it? Essential. Yeah. Um, you, then, you then go and start to build a marketplace to sell it. A marketplace is maybe the best word, um, but a website where you're going to sell it from. And what things do I need to make sure my Shopify site, if I'm going to lean on the Shopify uh, platform, have to have? Like how important is theme, for instance? Okay, yeah, great question. Let me let me just comment on something that you said before I get into that. And then we can yeah. talk tactics all day long. Um, <laughs> if you, this might appeal to, to your listeners as well, but if you have a brick and mortar store already that's successful, right. you have, getting into e-com is going to be a million times easier than some kid in his ginch in his mom's basement to drop shipping from China, right? Like you, first of all, I mentioned product market fit. Right. The second most important piece of this puzzle is merchant market fit. So that means you've, you have experience in retail. That's massive, right? You've, you've been through the struggle of building your business. I'm sure you've had some bad months where you're about to, you know, toss yeah. in. That counts for so much. But not only that, you have products that you know people walk into the store, come to the counter and say, yes, I'm going to purchase this. It's not on sale. I'm going to buy it. Right. You know, even the local guys that we've worked with around here, like it's insane how explosive... It, their growth can be online when they just decide, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to light up a Shopify store here and it's going to supplement my, my brick and mortar. Right. Like you said, pretty soon, pretty soon it can be 50, 50 split. Right. Right. Another thing I like about brick and mortar stores is you essentially have a beautiful space to be taking pictures in, to be creating content in, right. It's just having a brick and mortar is everything. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. Right? Love that. And it's funny, you know, we, I, you know, I did say we treat brick and mortar today. Uh, and I'm going to say it was probably Doug Stevens that, that maybe released this a few years ago that said, you know, brick and mortar stores are going to change and they're going to become part of our advertising mechanism, you know, a place for us to capture a customer, not necessarily a place for us to do business with them. Wow. And it is that the beauty, the sensory experience that they have in your store, you know, the things they see, smell, hear that, that attracts them to you. So, okay, merchant market, product market fit, merchant market fit. How do we marry, you know, what we're good at in store to translate that online? Amazing question. <laughs> I've still got your last question in the back of my mind here too. But, yes. Um, <laughs> so it's actually I, I use this analogy so much when it comes to e-commerce your e-commerce platform should be as close to your actual brick and mortar physical experience as possible right now the, the tough part here is that you don't have, you're, you're cutting out a couple of the senses right you, you mentioned smell is a liter literally part of your experience in a brick and mortar store, right? 
Not yet do we have the technology to inject sense into people's computers, but maybe that right. maybe that's coming one day. Smell a vision, right? Yeah. But um, so again, feeling you can't hold a piece of clothing, you can't right, you can't spray a, a perfume and know what it smells like. So we have to do everything possible to get as close to that experience as we can on e-commerce. And the way to do that is with just incredible content, and that comes from product video photography of course but also copywriting yeah. brand vibes right everything that you everything that happens in your store should be reflected on your online experience this comes right down to what you're good at dan i know inventory management like i always tell people you wouldn't have a brick and mortar store where you walk in and there's piles of jeans on the floor in the corner right your collections need to be sorted tagged everything needs to be organized in a way that you know a user is going to come in and they're going to be able to find exactly what they need as quickly as in as few clicks as possible and it's not confusing to navigate your store so that's a massive part right i've had i've had clients try to pitch me maybe we should put all of our red items in a collection candles sweaters this and that i'm like no who <laughs> you know you know, maybe that would work in a brick and mortar store, but if I'm looking for clothing, I'm not going to click the red section and sort through 9,000 other products, right? right? Just make it really, really intuitive. Yeah, I love that. And I think in brick and mortar, you know, we do, in our, in our, in our physical stores, we often assemble product by category without thinking that we're doing it by category, but because it tells a story. You know, we're, we've got denim that is, you know, a denim bar that is in very close relation to our t-shirts or our sweaters or our blazers. You know, we've got to be able to tell the story about an outfit and the challenge, you know, uh, all right, I'm going to tell you this. Um, three years ago, I'd, uh, I, I would have shot you for trying to sell me an e-com store in, a, in an apparel world, in such a tactile world. But it came from a place of ignorance. I didn't recognize at the time how powerful copy was. I never really associated copywriting with the, with the sell of, of, you know, cashmere sweaters in my store or bamboo underwear. Or, you know, we come up with some of the softest, creamiest, buttery fabrics that, you know, we think everybody's got to actually touch them, but that's not true anymore. And to your point, you know, sensory experience is about taking me to a place and you can tell me a story and I start to envision that place. I start to feel like I'm at the beach. I start to feel like I'm in a cigar bar. So copy really is something that, you know, we have to pay a lot more attention to. And we do it in our stores. We do it in the way we speak to customers about products. You know, we, we say to people, in romantically closing a sale, imagine what Sunday supper is going to feel like. Imagine what date night's going to be like with this great dress. Imagine the way he's going to look at you or she's going to look at you. You know, we're trying to take people somewhere. And so do you think that that's part of the secret sauce that you've, that you've added to what is just a collection of products? Absolutely. This Dan, you looking for work as a copywriter? Some of these bombs you're dropping here, that's awesome. <laughs> Buttery. Um, yeah, and it's 
bang on. So it's, it's a stack, right? Yeah. So the stack of value propositions. And I often hear this with some of our brands and retailers is, you know, we talk about offers a lot, right? Yeah. And the, they say, well, I don't want to go discount everything. I just don't want to like be constantly doing that. I'm like, that's not an offer. An offer is positioning in your customer's mind a value that is way up here. Yeah. You can see my hand yeah. with a price point that's way down here. Yeah. And the way you create value is not always just saying 40% off, right? That's, mon we call that transactional value, transactional right. attribute. But like you said, that copy that you're writing there and, and ex expanding, telling the stories, expanding on the value propositions, that is adding value, right? The, the photography that you're doing, there's a brand that I follow, we don't work together, but I love them because of what they do. And they probably have monster budgets for creative and for photography, but Orson Iris, they're called out of New York and probably not safe for work website, but all good. A lot of good looking girls on there, but <laughs> not a lot of clothes on, but they'll have literally 40 product shots. With, that are on figure, off figure, white backdrop, videos. And as you scroll through the carousel, it shows every possible angle, every close up, like the fabric. Like you said, you can't feel it, but you know what it feels like because that photography is so good. And right, so it's, it's stacking those things. Size guides when it comes to re fashion retail especially on e-commerce, it's not just, you don't wanna just do a one size fits all size guide, pardon the pun there. Each product in an ideal world should have its own size guide with its own model, showing the right. type of body that fits in that clothing and how it fits, right? Because that's, first of all, that's gonna improve your sales. Second of all, that's gonna, you know, diminish your returns which can be devastating on some of the brands we work with like yeah yeah exactly. and, and is is i mean mitigating your your this this heavy heavy return rate is that all about telling a better story in the product is it all about you know saying hey i'm you know i'm 5'10 250 pounds you know, I normally would wear a double X to cover off the beer belly. Um, I'm in a whatever. I'm in a trip here because it's European size or whatever. But yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like if they don't returns happen when they don't when they purchase something and didn't come the way they imagined it would. Right. Right. So you have to eliminate that. And I mean, there's so many strategies as well for for mitigating returns post-purchase like make sure you know excite them on your brand as it's coming so maybe when it does get there they're more they're they're hotter than they were when they purchased it purchased it right and does you believe that happens that people get more and more tied to a brand more and more loyal to a brand between the time they purchase and the time they open it wow great question because that is something that's always plagued e-commerce brands, right? Right. Um, and it can be a yes or a no, depending on the tactics that you deploy. So literally a couple of weeks ago, we were introduced to an app that um, is really beginning to solve this. It's called Rush. And what it does is it focuses on the this customer um, period from when they purchase to when it arrives at their door. 
right? Which is always that kind of like, yeah. what do we say? What do we say to them? What do we do here? They're just waiting. Maybe they're pissed off that it's not being shipped fast enough, da, da, da. But really working on that tracking experience where you can customize your pages and your content around. It's not just a, you know, Canada Post tracking page they're looking at. They're looking at your brand. You show them videos. You give them thank you for purchasing videos. You, you get, get the meat hooks deeper yeah. as that product is shipping. And once it arrives at their door, yeah, they're, they're hopefully hotter than they were when they purchased. Well, and Okay. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. Do you think there's value in slowing down how quickly something arrives? <laughs> Hell no. No. Okay. <laughs> no. Good. I mean, you know, I, I, maybe it's not that definitive. It really depends. You know, maybe it if you're selling something really high ticket and you're really working that brand experience, it could, it might be a benefit to you for it to take longer. We have one company that we work with that literally they, so it's all these indoor play gyms for kids that really focus on like autistic children where they, you know, they're in their house, their gyms. These things are made in Russia. Margins are pretty slim on them, but they take sometimes three to four months to yeah. ship. And one of the strategies that they have that gets people just so ramped up on this is they actually have a Facebook group of about 5,000 people that are in there talking about it. And, you know, once they purchase your join, we're going to invite you to join that group to see how other people are experiencing it, what to expect with the setup, all this stuff. So by the time it does come, it's like, you know, Christmas in June or whenever it arrives. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, there's yeah. Okay. Because I, I was going to say, I, yeah, I was worried that you were going to say, yeah, yeah, slow your, slow your shipping down, at least get three to five days or get, you know, two weeks. And I, I think the number one comment that I see, whether it's a review on Facebook or Google or, you know, messages that are being shared is how quickly something got to me, which, you know, let's go back in time and think about the big app. Amazon, almost called them assholes, the big Amazon, <laughs> you know, their, their claim to fame was how quickly they got. I mean, it was all about speed and convenience. And I believe today that the independent retailer has greater power over their speed and convenience for their customer um, yeah. in, in the way they curate products. And the fact that, you know, if I'm buying from a local store, I'm probably getting things within three days of the click sometimes faster depending on you know on canada post or whoever's shipping um and i do believe that speed is one of the biggest benefactors to you know the indie retailer that's out there you know moving their brick and mortar store online not moving it online adding online i don't mean to say moving i'm a brick and mortar yeah. guy i live and die by the power of you know that physical space um but i also believe now that that this channel that, that, that can deliver an omni ex experiential um, um, purchase is, is going to change drastically from today forward. You know, what's happened in the last 18 months, I mean, the forced evolution that's happened in the last 18 months or two years, I guess we're two years now, we might as well call it two years, um, is going to augment retail. It's not a replacement of how we've done retail, it's an augmentation of retail. Absolutely. hundred yeah. percent. No, speed. Yeah. Speed to delivery is huge. 
this is completely anecdotal, but I find yeah. Canadians <laughs> are a lot less caught up on how fast it's going to get to their door than Americans. Right. For whatever reason, Americans are like, what? It's going to take 16 hours to get here? Not yeah. buying. So like, I don't know. I don't know why that is. Maybe the space that we have around us. Right. Just, right. Could be. Well, I can tell you uh, spending 30 years in retail um, and working with retailers on both sides of the border, um, the, the, the group to the north is far more patient, far less disposable in their, in their purchase pattern than our friends or neighbors to the south. And that could be a big thing, you know, based on supply and based on, you know, what demand is, you know, think about what our demand is here versus what demand is for a store that's in New York City that has a million people, you know, living above it in a square block. We're lucky to find a million people, in, you know, in a, in a hundred square miles. Right. Yeah. Right. No. So, yeah. I mean, either way fast shipping is is again one of those things that you stack onto the value of what you're providing right yeah as well as your return policies as well as all these things guarantees it's just you know once the the whole package is there it has to just be and we call it a grand slam offer to quote Mm -hmm. hermosi who wrote a book recently here where they just can't say no you drive them to a product page and they have to buy that they have to buy it is our is our goal you touched on return policy. Um, what, do you have a philosophical uh, opinion on what a return policy should look like? I happen to have one, Dan. Yes, philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> um, return, poli- return policies should always favor the consumer. You should always take returns, no questions asked. Yeah. Give money back, no questions asked because it's going to improve your cost per acquisition so much right because you're just eliminating risk take right. the risk away for the purchase by the time it gets to them by the time they try it on very few people have this like male- malevolent attitude that they want to just you know hustle you and send right. something back or they wear it once like it always you're always going to be better for it right if you just make it real easy and cheap and great to return yeah. All right. Let's retailers. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna repeat uh, what Simon shared. Your return policy. You've heard me say this before, many, many, many times. Your return policy should be this simple. If you're not happy, I'm not happy. I don't care where you wore it, where you bought it, when you bought it. You know how many drinks you had spilled on it. I don't care. If you're not happy, I can't be happy. And that should really lead you know, everything that we project about our guarantee, our, our guarantee should be that we're here for you. I don't give a shit about the product. You know, if a seam comes loose on a t-shirt, send it back. Yeah, you don't even send it back. Just tell me that it happened. Let me get you a new one. I'll share this example. You know, one of the guys that works with us is, is um, Mike Nascimento, Mike Nash with the Prairie States. And we buy a bunch of Prairie States gear. It's a country band here, a local country band. We buy a bunch of their gear. And he, he called me on the weekend and said, hey, Dan, one of our shirts, they did a low-life beer and a low-life T-shirt. And he said, the colors are really bad. And I said, yeah, I know. I own one. And uh, <laughs> he's like, what do I do? I'm like, send everybody a new shirt. You know who bought that shirt. Send them the shirt that tells them you're thinking about them. Don't wait for them to come and say, 
hey, there's a problem. And that's just an example of, you know, if you're not happy, I'm not happy. And there's no way that you're going to be happy with a shirt that's had color drip off of it or crack or fade or, and that, that speaks to any one of your products. If you know there's a deficiency in your product, you know, get out in front of it. And whether that deficiency is, is a manufacturing challenge or, you know, I've now washed this thing 20 times at my house and I'm not really happy with the pilling, you got to let your customer know that. That's what strengthens the relationship or the bond between um, customer and retailer. Absolutely. A lifetime, I mean, no, you're bang on. I agree with everything right. you said there because temporarily you're going to be out a few bucks, right. right? Your costs, some shipping, whatnot. But that customer, when you make them happy and you make their day and they tell everybody they know about you and post about you and, you know, come back and purchase every two months for the rest, for the next five years, that one return that you, that, you know, in the past, maybe you would fight over and, and piss this guy right off. Yes. And you don't want to send anything back. The, the temporary pain is just so not worth it. Not worth it. I agree. Listen, I, I believe, Simon, that there are two numbers, two metrics. I'm a numbers guy. I'm a metrics guy. There's two metrics that I cannot count. There's two things I can't measure in a retail store. Number one is missed sales. I can't count the number of sales I didn't close. Number two, I can never count the lifetime value of a customer. It is mm -hmm. an unknown. All I can do is work to continue increasing that customer's value. I don't know if they're shopping once, twice, 10 times, 200 times. My goal should be that they become a customer for life, but I can't count what that value looks like today. We've never seen you know, what the optimum lifetime value of a customer is. None of us are old enough to know what that looks like. Agree or disagree? Uh, I mean, agree on the on the retail side. So, and then I'm just gonna be like, I have a lot of a lot of clients that have brick and mortar, right? Yeah. So I'm always like, I'm a numbers guy too. I'm like, we have to be able to track what we're doing. And if they're coming in store and I need you to get their email address at the till because we right. need to put them in our system so we can see if they purchase online later. I'm, I am absolutely obsessed with calculating lifetime value of our customers because once you figure that out, and this is maybe the beauty of e-com is you can figure that out yeah. and you can figure it out pretty quick and you can figure out the year value of your, your average customers and you can segment different types of customers into different lifetime values, right? You know, this group of customers purchases 12 times a year, this group twice per year, and these guys one and done kind of thing. Right. And because once you crack that, then you can really kind of reverse engineer the scalability of your business. And I know you're big on sustainable growth. I am too, because, you know, you have to be, otherwise you're going to be the right. rich guy who goes poor. Well, poor. Um, but like, this is a really counterintuitive way to look at things. And, and I don't want to blow too many minds here, but there's the big metric we look at in advertising, especially in customer acquisition is ROAS, return on ad spend, yep. right? And it's, this, this is the counterintuitive part. I want that to be as low as it can be. Yeah, weird, okay. right? All right. Okay, because when I, see, when I see someone with a 10X ROAS and say they're spending five grand a month and 
they're jumping for joy. Yeah, 10x ROAS, five grand, turn into $50,000 in revenue. Right. Great. I'm like, right. the, my next step, and this is the evolution and the mindset of a, of a really growth-oriented re, um, e-commerce retailer is I want to spend 10 times that. And maybe I end up with a three ROAS, but at the end of the day, I've acquired exponentially more customers, maybe five times more customers than I would have. If I know that customer lifetime value, I can reverse engineer it and say those extra, say, 10,000 customers are going to be worth another 500 grand this year, right? as opposed right. to, you know, fewer customers that worth a little, the same amount. Right. So it really, really, it turns into a game of numbers. Okay. And, if, and it all hinges on that lifetime value. All right. the, the hitch here, sustainability, is you have to be able to float the cash <laughs> to get that, right? To experience right. that lifetime value when it happens. Right. Okay. So this is the thing that scares the shit out of me. Um, and this is not on you. This is on marketing in general. And almost every marketing um, superpower that I've ever had the good fortune to chat with loves to talk about return on ad spend. And I'm getting you a, you know, three time or five time or 10 time return on the ad spend. And why wouldn't you do this? Where does uh, operation expense, fulfillment expense, you know, cost of good fall into that equation? That's your job, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree. And listen, no, thank you for saying, but it, it is something that we have to kind of recognize that I'm going to give you a thousand. You're going to give me back three in revenue. Mm -hmm. But so on a keystone, like at a keystone margin, 50% margin, the cost of my inventory is 1500 bucks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My ad spend was a thousand. Now I'm at 2,500 out of that three. And I still haven't paid my staff yet. So how so, do we find that to get beyond what break even is and take a, a more well-rounded approach to um, what I'd call, um, you know, sustainable retailing? Yeah. Yeah. No, bang on. I, I, I kid, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple, couple things here is, well, as, as the owner of a business, you need to know your numbers better than anybody else, right? And you hire a marketing guy to come on and he's going to be start chirping about 10x ROAS is this, that, and the other thing. You need to, you need to know what will be break even or better for you on a customer acquisition point. And, and you need to share that with your marketing guy. I know it's hard sometimes to lift up the hood and, you know, right. have some random guy come in and peek, but, it, but if you have a really, if you know, you, these relationships we have with our clients are very close, we're a big part of their business. And if they're not sharing these kind of key metrics with us, we're flying blind thinking we're out there winning in a big way. And meanwhile, this guy's bleeding out over here. Right. Right. So you have to be very open about with your numbers, with the people that are managing your spends. This is so well said, retailers. Oh my God. Retailers that, that know me and work with me know that I have to know what's under the hood in order to really do my job well. And, and whether that is coaching an inventory plan um, or executing an operating plan or building a marketing budget, 
if we don't know what's under the hood, we're flying blind and could sink a retailer as quickly as we can float them. And so Absolutely. retailers, you do have to be open. You know, you build a trust the same way that you build trust with your customer, you build a trust with your partner. So, you know, when Simon and I sit across the table from each other, I can't hide something from Simon or I can't get the best out of Simon. He's, he's you know, working with two legs instead of three. He's got to be able to, to live in that tripod world. And so retailers, you've got you've to get past the fear of somebody finding out that you need help. And this is the biggest, Simon, this is the biggest thing that scares the shit out of retailers. They don't want to be found out that, you know, they're a cluster. They don't know what they're doing. They made some mistakes in the past. Their payroll's way over here. And, yeah. you know, we're objective. We don't, I don't give a shit about any of that. Just show me the numbers. Yeah, no doubt. Every, every room of entrepreneurs I've ever been in when there's a bunch of people all gathered in, yeah, everyone's always doing amazing. Nothing's <laughs> going wrong. Best year we've ever had this, that of like, yeah. I run a business. I run two businesses. I know the struggles. It's, <laughs> it's hard. There's yeah. bad months, good months. There's right. It's yeah. Um, in retail, we wake up one morning and think we're the smartest in the world. And the next morning we wake up thinking we're going broke and we're going to buy craft dinner at the grocery store. Cause that's all we can afford. <laughs> you know, we live on that, that roller coaster. You know, yeah, we, we're all in the same. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I get that. So just even to take this a bit further, so I, I do have a problem with looking at like direct return numbers on like a platform level. So right. like Facebook, right? Because it's not giving you the whole story. Right. And so what the metric is that we look at more holistically, it's called we call it MER. MER, it stands for marketing efficiency ratio. Yeah. And this, all you do is you take your full paid spend, your full ad spend, and essentially divide that by revenue. And that gives you a number that's, you know, the, it takes into account all the other stuff you're doing. Right. Email marketing, SMS, right? Like organic, anything that's coming through there, because we work massively in what we call the halo effect as well. So anything we're doing on email, anything we're doing on organic, social media, any events you're putting on, anything like that is going to impact your ads, is going to impact your spend, right? So it, it's going to do better all of a sudden and vice versa. If you're out there spending, you know, good, a good significant budget on ads, go to your organic, that's all of a sudden going to be doing better. Your sales just kind of grow. The more channels you have operating, the better you can do. Right. Yeah. And I'm going to say Amazon this. Amazon is going to start crushing. Yeah. Simon, I, you know, one of the things that we constantly look at is, you know, every expense as a percentage of revenue and we benchmark it. We know what the entire ad spend is as a percentage of revenue and we benchmark it and we want to get mm -hmm. to a place where we think, okay, if I spend another dollar in marketing, is it going to get me the $8 that I'm hoping for or, or planning for in return revenue? Everything has to be based from your revenue and your rent isn't any different than your ad costs or your collection fees, your merchant fees. You know, your cost of goods sold has to be a percentage of your revenue. And if one of them is too high, you know, the, the most important percentage is depleted and that's profit. Yeah, you know, so absolutely. We have to have a better understanding of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, and and I agree one hundred percent. It really it depends on the the aggre how aggressive you want to be. 
when right. it comes to you know percentage of ad spend of revenue. I've seen you know guys that are that have the cash to do it. Fifty percent of yeah. of their revenue is ads. Right. Right. Right down to like you know I probably wouldn't be be comfortable with the client who is spending less than ten percent. Right. Right. Well, it's I can tell you this: old school thinking in retail, old school. So brick and mortar, old school. I might dump an ad in the newspaper. P.S. Can't measure that. I might throw something on the radio. Can't measure that. You know, it, yeah. we've been one to three percent of revenue. And then we started to think that, okay, that makes no sense at all. You know, especially in brick and mortar retail, where I might be paying, you know, 60 bucks a foot for my retail space. You have to look at occupancy and advertising or marketing as a combined expense. And now we're looking at saying, hey, wait a minute, the ideal here is probably somewhere between nine and 15. And on, depending on how low your occupancy expense is, you might push your advertising up closer to 15 and land at 20 or 21% between your building where you're selling goods and your marketing to drive both channels of revenue. That is an incredibly sophisticated way to look at this. I, and I would do the same. And I tell this to my e-commerce guys all the time is if they don't have a brick and mortar, all of a sudden they're not spending 10 grand a month right. on leasing a space, right? Exactly. Which can go right at like, and they don't understand a lot of these e-com guys, they have, especially starting out have the mindset that they shouldn't have to spend a dime and people are just going to flock in and buy their stuff. And, you know, and it's like, no, yeah. it's just, sorry. If you build it, they will not come. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. I, I find it funny that we, we understand how the stock market works. We buy stock, we invest in stock and as stock matures or, Otherwise, we make or lose money, but we don't think about it in retail that way. I mean, I think about inventory like it's a stock. I'm going to invest mm. in inventory, get it to a place where I'm getting a good return. And as soon as that inventory starts to turn brown, you know, it becomes this brown banana on my shelf. I'm divesting <laughs> myself of that stock. You know, I'm quickly getting out of that stock right now. And, and we need to be a bit more sophisticated. There is a great deal of science that's connected to retail. And one of the things that I've, I've pitched myself on, uh, you know, for, for, I don't know, more than a decade is I'm a science guy. You know, I, 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 I'm science, your art together, we build this beautiful picture of profitability. And we've got to have an equal amount of science and an equal amount of art. Art is the what we buy, the how we're going to you know, display it. That's all art stuff. That's all touchy stuff. We need some data to help drive us forward. And I love that you are a data-driven entity, that you're really metrics-driven. And, you know, we, we all have to believe that if we measure it, we can improve it. If we don't measure yeah. it, we ain't fixing it. Absolutely. Yeah. The yeah. great, great stuff. The, on the art side, you figure out, yeah, what resonates Right. You can figure as soon as you as soon as you hit that, yeah, then the science comes in and says, how do we just get this through that's maximum potential? And right. Just, well, mm -hmm. Right. Simon, I have to tell you, man, this has been a great, uh, a great conversation. I'm I'm gonna uh, leave this door wide open for you and I to chat. Um, I I want to have you to come back and join me again quickly. Um, I want to yeah. hear about um, you know, your your merchant. 
uh, mindset. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. I talk about a wealthy mindset in retail, you know, acronym that, that, that wealth is for me, the acronym that wealth is, is how I, how I measure and operate and, and, and output in my stores. And I have a feeling that your, your merchant mindset is going to be very similar to that. And so uh, I can't wait to have you back to chat about that again. Simon, before I let you go, please share with the audience how they find you and Socialite and Merchant Mastery. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So websites we have, <laughs> socialite.ca, merchantmastery.io. I highly recommend, if you're interested in this e-com stuff, joining our free-to-join Facebook group called Merchant Mastery. That is the place where there's going to be a couple thousand people in there, an amazing community, tons of resources for learning and growing your business. And yeah, and I'm in there every day as well. So yeah, nice. Retailers, um, there's not a one of you out there that's not on Facebook on a regular basis. You know that that's uh, a large part of where your audience is, whether it is on the Facebook application or platform or Instagram, get out there and join Merchant Mastery, go search it out on Facebook. Uh, join this group, learn a little bit more about Simon and the, his team and the great work they're doing. Uh, if you're not already subscribed to the Canadian Retail Solutions Weekly Newsletter, hit retailbycrs.com up, subscribe to that newsletter, get a copy of this podcast and other great information that we're sharing uh, from fabulous partners like Simon and Socialite Merchant Mastery. Simon, thanks so much, man. Truly appreciate it. I can't wait to talk to you again soon. All right, Dan, absolutely. It was an absolute pleasure.